speak because I can come to church without a mask now. <laughs> Sermons just the extra. So here we go. Well, you're doing well, hopefully. Good. Hope you had a happy day. We did. So, um, this evening, we are launching, apologies for the dreadful pun, into a new series on Jonah, one of the best-known biblical characters. And even folks otherwise largely ignorant of the scriptures are well familiar with the story of Jonah and his whale. Uh, But sorry to say, in reality, the fish has only a relatively small swim-on part. Uh, That's because, unlike most adult fish stories, this one is about a human who didn't get away. Or at least initially, because as with many of the best and old Jewish stories, and indeed some of Jesus' parables, most of them in fact, on deeper reflection it turns out that there's a lot more going on than what first meets the eye. And from the outset, things are already a bit tricky. And that's because no one knows exactly when the story was written. And here we begin to encounter the first of the many odd things about Jonah. You see, unlike your usual prophetic book, there are no references to the kings in whose reigns this happened. And that's just the beginning. Here is a book stuck in the middle of a collection of 12 prophetic writings, the Book of the Twelve, that's the last bit in your what you call, or we would call, of the Old Testament. Actually, Israel Scriptures is the new designation. Is that okay? No more Old Testaments. Okay, there's the professor carrying on. Just ignore me, right? So here it is stuck in the middle of the Book of the Twelve, and yet it contains not a single prophetic oracle. That's the technical response. Indeed, at no point in the book is Jonah ever described as a prophet, which is strange too. In fact, he seems a bit more like a regular individual. Now, it's true, for the bright folks who are right up with me here at this point and keeping in in tow, if you like, or uh, holding me to account, there's just one place in the New Testament where Jesus himself calls Jonah or speaks of the prophet Jonah. The problem there is that could be a shorthand way of just referring to the book. I'll just put that in as a bit of a footnote there. Well, in fact, Jonah is so different from typical prophetic books that careful readers have long wondered how in the world it ever ended up in the Twelve. In fact, nowhere in all of Scripture do you find such a menagerie, to put it mildly, of strange behaviours and events. For example, what kind of prophet does exactly the opposite to what God requires? And then throughout seems far more concerned about himself than anyone or anything else. How many Israelites do you know who have a propensity for dangerous ocean-going voyages? They tend to avoid the sea like the plague. And an explicit death wish. Throw me out, we just read about that. Oh, and did I mention the fish? What prophet actually ever goes to a foreign country to preach repentance? All of which is followed by a bad case of sunburn, a plant appointed by God that obediently grows up to shade Mr. Grumpy, followed immediately by the hungry caterpillar, you've probably read the children's book, also appointed by God, who feasts on said plant so that it withers, and then who also appoints a strong wind and a very hot sun, all to add heat stroke insult to the injury of grumpiness. Where have you seen anything like that before? 
and I'm not trying to be facetious. I mean, it's all there, right? So what in the world is going on here? What do we do with this? Well, uh, whatever else we do, folks, it's important to understand, and here I am revealing my great age. There was a very good reason why The Simpsons was so popular. I need to spend more time with my grandkids, obviously. <laughs> I haven't quite caught up with this stuff yet. And it was not because people thought that there was a place in the American Midwest where people had very serious kidney and liver ailments in a city that was either an optometrist, optometrist dream or nightmare, depending on your perspective. <laughs> we watched The Simpsons because of its profound insights into American and modern culture. We probably wouldn't have tolerated it in a straight drama. But Mary Poppins like, the medicine is made much more palatable with large dollops of humour and utterly over-the-top ridiculosity. You can repeat that after me, it's a new word. Right, feel free, you heard it first here. Right? And even so, peppered with the occasional uber-zinger. So, welcome to Jonah, I would say. Don't get too hooked on the fish. Sorry, another terrible pun. Right? Uh, there's a far more important message to be heard and probably just as insightful and on occasion with an even more serious jolt. So I'll let you know when those are coming. Now, even in the midst of all of this oddity and zaniness, zaniness one element is clear. And that is the city of Nineveh, which features front and centre. Now, it's now part of modern Mosul, you know, in Iraq, second largest Iraqi city. Nineveh too was perhaps the second largest city in the ancient Near Eastern world, just coming after much renowned Babylon. And the author makes this point quite clear, I think, by declaring it took three days to walk across the city. So it's a sizable place. Now, what this means is that he seems to envisage Nineveh when it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And that tells us something very important. And what is it? Assyria was the greatest enemy of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. It was legendary for a couple of things. First of all, its vicious cruelty. Uh, you might have seen some of these uh, if you've ever been to London, but the famous freezes of the terrifyingly brutal siege of the city of Lachish in Judah. Right, we're all adults, we can talk about it, but uh, on this freeze you'll see people being flayed alive. They'd have their hands and their feet cut off. Uh, they'd get these wooden stakes, sharpen the points, they'd harden them in the fire and then just put them up under people's rib cages and you just see these figures of hanging. So if you went to visit the Assyrian king, that's what adorned the waiting room. You get the underlying message? Don't mess with us. They're also known for forcibly stripping lands bare of their peoples and compelling them into horribly dislocating deportations. Think of Syrian refugees, but worse. As someone once said, the Assyrians were the Nazis of the ancient world. Now just let that sink in for a moment. It's the first thing we hear in this story about Emmanuel City. This is way beyond Joe Biden's messianic light over against the darkness of a city full of Donald Trump supporters. This is really serious stuff. So it seems to me, whatever its over-the-top characters, and uh, Jonah really stars in that regard, and whatever our Sunday schools might have done with Jonah, this is no children's story. 
ready, strapped in, ready to go, good. Now, beginnings are critical, and where do we begin? Well, look at that. It's a Jewish document, and it starts, surprise, surprise, not with the word of the Lord. Well, of course, for Israel, everything begins with the Lord. Uh, Eugene Peterson, the blessed memory, used to lecture at Regent, and in one of his lectures, he would say of Genesis, everything begins with God speaking. In fact, he talked about prayer like that. Prayer is not the beginning of our conversation with God. It began right back in Genesis. And his point was, neither Israel nor we invented this. This is the Lord's thing that starts with him. Everything that comes after is simply our response. And can I say, welcome again to Jonah. That's the central question. This is all about his response. And spoiler alert, little one, what if in the last line of the book, no looking, God's final question to Jonah is the one that we must all face ourselves. That's a few more episodes on. And it is the word of the Lord, by the way, that comes to Jonah, not some little inkling, a mere suggestion. It comes with all the authority appertaining to the word of the Lord. It came to Jonah. Uh, that's a little bit of Pentecostal background. Is that okay? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> And, you know, and it's not complicated. It's a neat, compact sequence of simple statements. Get up and go at once to Nineveh and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, we're not actually told what Jonah is called to cry out, but given that it's Nineveh, it's probably not hard to imagine it. <laughs> now, can I just make a little comment here that uh, given the focus of Jonah and the subsequent zaniness of his response, I think it's easy to miss this. Right at the beginning, God takes Nineveh's wickedness very seriously. There was a time a year or two ago when it was all about tolerance and pluralism. Do you remember those vague memories of that kind of... Um, but frankly, I think that was always a facile exercise in self-deception... Uh, any time any human being took a view, it necessarily stood over against those who disagreed. I just think pluralism is not delusional. Don't, don't fall for it. But now the mask is completely off, speaking of masks. <laughs> right? uh, we have come at last, as Nick Cave recently put it, to the merciless bad religion of wokeness and the cancel culture movements. Point is, um, humans make moral judgments. You can't be human without doing that. To deny we make moral judgments is to deny, deny our humanity, right? So let's just own up to that and work out what we do with it. But for Israel, in all the cacophony of self-righteous voices, the only moral judgment that matters is God. That's the only one. That's why it begins with the word of the Lord. Now, because of the unhappy history between Israel and Judah and Nineveh, we might have imagined that this, well, would have been good news to Jonah. Indeed, very good news. At last, recompense upon these reprobates or whatever. Don't you think? But what does Jonah do? What other prophet do you know who flatly just takes off? I mean, nothing, not a, not a hint of Moses having a debate with the Lord back in the Exodus. No discussion whatsoever. He just goes. An entirely the opposite direction. God says, get up, and what does he do? He goes down to Joppa. He's told to go east, and what does he do? He goes west to Tarshish. We're not sure where that is. Could be Spain, could be Carthage, Sardinia. 
as far as the east is from the west, did Jonah remove himself from the presence of the Lord? <laughs> well, a couple of things here. Um, first one's a bit more serious. Those of you who know your scriptures will immediately pick up on the pairing of word and presence. And hopefully you'll remember this. Uh, which together bookend this paragraph. Begins with the word of the Lord and finishes with presence. What's that remind you of? Of course, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And why is that so important? It's the classic statement of Israel's calling before the watching world. They were told if they walked in the ways of the Lord, the nations would say of them, what a wise and understanding people. Might be worth asking, when did that last happen for us? Part of the hallmark of who they were. And if you do this, the Lord said, you'll have a God who is present to you, near to answer you whenever you call upon him. Those are the two hallmarks of Israel, word and presence. And if I just make a little comment, it seems to me that most churches fall on one side of that equation or the other. And neither is adequate on its own. You need both. Now, you know, you've got that language with all the echoes of Deuteronomy 4 behind it, at least for me. And, and it's no surprise then that when Jonah ignores the word of the Lord and flees from his presence, he's increasingly revealed as being anything but wise. This comes out in the chapter we've got. And then that promise-saving presence, what happens? Well, it becomes something else entirely, which is what we get at the very end of this chapter. So coming out of this, second point, I guess, is um, he can't seriously imagine that by paying a fare or putting as many leagues as he can under the keel of an ancient trading vessel, that that's the end of it? I mean, really? <laughs> what? <laughs> Yahweh is not some local deity confined to the garden, varieties, uh, garden environs of this or that city. He's a whole earth God. How do you run from someone who is both where you are currently and at the same time, even before you get there, where you hope to be? How do you run from that? <laughs> He's a really clever guy, this bloke. And does Jonah really think that such an important matter as the word of the Lord is so easily absconded? He's going on inside your head, mate. And uh, you know, great thing it wouldn't be us, though, is we would never do that. Well, <clears throat> sorry, Jonah, this is not going to work, not in your life, because the father of Israel sends the mother of all storms. And it's the appropriate region. Okay? Well, uh, now, even pagan mariners can tell us a god storm from an everyday garden variety spot of inclement weather. Right? And they immediately start praying desperately, each to his own God. That apparently failing, then they do their thing, dumping the cargo into the sea. Now, you need to understand, that's a serious loss of revenue in an already extremely high-risk business. But, you know, um, it's worth maybe thinking, what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? And, and what about Jonah, that spiritual giant, What's he done? He's gone down even further. This time into the hole, about as far down as he could go, and he lays down to sleep. You get all the ups and downs here? That's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> but as we'll soon see, he's about to discover there's a lot further down to go just, you know, <laughs> beyond this. 
Well, um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I might have shared this story once before. Has anyone actually been out um, in a boat in the mother of all storms? So um, I did once a number of years ago. I was on a race from uh, Vancouver Island to Maui. And uh, we got caught about 400 miles off uh, the coast, the western U.S. coast in a gale, sorry, in a storm. And you do note that a, a storm is significantly worse than a gale. It's serious stuff. Uh, rolling seas, 25 to 30 foot waves, cresting, streaks of foam, and there's just no stop button. It was the most extraordinary thing, right? In the middle of the night, there's two of us on watch. You can't see anything. All you've got is this little orange compass, and, and you don't know where the waves are coming from, and you just think, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, right? And your mind says, okay, you die. <laughs> and you, just, you can't get off. It's the most extraordinary experience to go through. Uh, it really does, as someone once said, focus the mind. And the noise is unbelievable. Everything rattles, whistles, whines, groans, creaks, howls. You can actually feel the hull of the boat flex. Right? Just, it was extraordinary. The point is, no one sleeps. And yet, what do you get here? Right? Jonah asleep. Like, really? Like, really, really? Um, it's part of the reason why I'm just not sure what to do with this story because there's all kinds of bizarre things going on like this. It's got a really good point, but um, anyway. Talk about Mr. Insensate. All he cares about is himself. And if you think I'm being harsh, I'm not. I'm simply agreeing with the captain. He comes down and uh, in a little more expanded Hebrew, he says, what the flipping heck are you doing? <laughs> and you can insert your selfish prat if you like. And of course, only being a sea captain, he probably didn't say flipping or heck. <laughs> what does he say to Jonah? Get up. Where have you heard that before? Hmm. Call on your God. That's awkward. Jonah right now is in the very act of ignoring the Lord's call on him. Perhaps your God will spare us a thought, says the captain. Now this is telling. I wonder if the captain's put his finger on the issue here. He considers it at least a possibility that Jonah's God might care. And that's the point, I think. It's one of those little zingers, right? It's not long before God's disobedient people stop caring about anyone else except themselves. I wonder sometimes, is our lack of care for others just a symptom of running from the presence of the Lord? Now, of course, if you're an Israelite, you will know that your Lord is known for his showing mercy and compassion to all. And another little small spoiler alert, as we'll learn at the very end, Jonah is an Israelite, and it is precisely the Lord's propensity to care, not just a little, but a lot, that is the bone of contention in this story and the underlying cause of Jonah's extended temper tantrum. So are we really surprised that of all the people on the boat, it's Jonah, the one who says he worships the sole creator, who alone is not praying? Well, of course we're not surprised. How can you pretend to have a relationship with the Lord when you're living in blatant disregard to his word? Which is what Jonah's doing here. And maybe there's another point under there, right? Running from the presence of the Lord, a lack of care and no prayer. What if they all belong together? Hmm. 
Well, wonder of wonders, not. It's the pagan sailors who again take action. And they kind of intuit, well, if the gods haven't answered, right, it's because there must be something else amiss on the boat and they cast lots to find out. Uh, this is the great thing about Israel's God. He's already speaking through the storm. Uh, and being the creator of all people, he speaks even more clearly to them. At least they're listening. And in a language they cannot help but understand. So yes, the Lord is still in the business of speaking. And even if Jonah won't pay attention, since God can stir up the Mediterranean, since that's no problem, adding a few, adjusting a few lightweight lots is easily sorted, even on a heaving and plunging deck. That's easy for him, right? Bang. Well, what that means is essentially, Jonah is now officially sprung. Okay? <laughs> well, at last they learn the real cause of the problem. One of God's people is being rather naughty. And this is now, I think, kind of the real zinger. So just get ready for it. How much of our neighbourhood's trouble and our national calamities are due to us, God's people, running from what he calls us to do? A lack of care and hence an absence of prayer. Now, I'll leave your response up to you, but when I was working on this yesterday, it got me right between the eyes. You know those little kitty bows and arrows with a rubber thing on the end? I had about four of those sticking out of my forehead. I just and here I was thinking, this is just a funny kid's story about a man and his pet whale. Hmm. So Jonah fesses up, and I don't think I'm being too unkind, but I'm, I'm not sure I'd see this as a particularly noble act on his part. I mean, what else can he do? They got him. So, yes, he admits, I'm one of God's chosen people. Chosen? Yeah, chosen to be an example to the world. Hmm, right, and how exactly is that working out for you so far? <laughs> and I worship the Lord. Oh, really? And what was all that about running? The creator of the sea? Oh, right, across which you're now attempting to flee? Hmm, and the dry land? Oh, that's where you're meant to be, right? <laughs> you just talk about satirical things. It's incredible stuff. <laughs> and here again, the pagans get it better than Jonah does. They at least know enough to be afraid, unlike Jonah. What have you done? You priceless nong, whatever that might be in Aramaic. You blithering nincompoop. Are you serious? Are you a complete idiot? Right. You know far more than we do, and even we can see how stupefying, stupefyingly, mind-numbingly stupid you must be. I really enjoyed writing those sentences even if I can't pronounce them properly at night here. And if that's not bad enough, you've gone and got us involved. Now, um, I had a little line about this from this morning's sermon. I've been told I'm not to use it, but um, there is a wonderful line in Notting Hill where Spike responds to, um, what's his name, Will Facker, played by Hugh Grant, when... Uh, you just announces that he's turned down this famous and stunning film star, Anna Scott, and I'll let you watch the movie, but it's a wonderfully apt account. Uh, you daft something or other. Right. That's the first thing to notice, right? They, they just get how absolutely stupid this is. The second thing to notice, though, is it's Jonah's choice. This is not predestination, sorry. It's his choice. And he and we get to make them. 
and he and we as God's people are accountable. And only later, when you get this climactic and particularly unattractive temper tantrum, do we learn the real reason. But as in all good movies, that comes in the final scene and that's not us tonight. Well, with all the cards now on the table and the storm growing worse by the minute, the pagan sailors, perhaps showing more humanity than Jonah, try to avoid the inevitable by rowing harder. But of course, to no more avail than Jonah's futile attempt at flight from the Lord's presence, it ain't going to work. So for the sake of all on board, they first seek God's forgiveness in advance. And notice, this too is in contrast to Jonah, who nowhere seeks forgiveness either of the Lord, he's still giving the Lord the silent treatment, or of the men whose ship, goods and lives he has recklessly put at risk. So finally, acquiescing to Jonah's instruction, they chuck him over. And now we hear of the first of God's appointed provisions. A large fish. Who does what? He swallows Jonah up. A first step in the right direction. Here's a fish who's more obedient than Jonah. <laughs> Mind you, read of Isaiah. An ox knows its master and a donkey its master's crib, but my people neither know nor understand. The sea immediately ceased its raging, and then the men, it says, feared the Lord. Gee, that's a surprise. <laughs> Not, okay. And offered a sacrifice and made vows. And boy, you think, if only Jonah had as much wit. Now, what's particularly striking at the end of all of this is that even at this point of extremis, Jonah still refuses to get up. He would rather go down even into the depths. Yeah, he would rather die than go speak the word of the Lord to the Ninevites. In the upside down world that comes from ignoring the word of the Lord and fleeing from his presence, Jonah, made in God's image as the pinnacle of God's creation, designed to house God's very presence through the spirit, ends up becoming fish food. And that's where, as in all good TV series, this episode ends, leaving us all hanging or at least dog paddling in the belly of a large fish. <laughs> but, you know, perhaps we can understand why Jonah is included among the prophetic books, even though it looks so non-prophetic. Prophetic works characteristically speak to God's people in their present or the immediate future. And not only that, and I would normally be hesitant about making too much of the meanings of people's names, there's enough going on in Jonah that invites us, I think, to look a little deeper. Jonah actually means dove. Jonah, dove. And in scripture and the rabbinic tradition, the dove is a symbol for Israel. Might this be why Jonah is not specifically called a prophet? Might the book about this man be intended to be a prophetic word not just to but about all Israel about what it means to be God's people even and especially to their worst enemy 